Thank you for listening to the Renovation Church podcast. We're a family that believes you matter, and together we can do something that matters. We hope that this podcast aids you in your spiritual journey toward Jesus. If we can serve you on that journey, please let us know by visiting our website, renovationchurch.com. We always love to hear how the ministry of renovation is impacting your life. The best way to let us know is by leaving a review or tagging us on social media. Wherever you are in the world, know that Jesus loves you and we love you. Enjoy the podcast. Well, again, it is so good to be with you today. Um, if you didn't hear it the first time, my name is Leonce. Uh, my wife and I, Brianna, who's sitting there on the front row, um, are the co-founders of this incredible community. Um, but we are certainly not the heart of it. Uh, all of these wonderful people are. And uh, it is a joy to share this time with you. Today, we're kicking off a brand new series, uh, as you saw from the bumper, called The Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven. Here's the subtitle, Why God Chooses Questionable People to Do Remarkable Things. Uh, I, I posted that uh, this week, and, and, and one of the young men who I love so much uh, commented on the post, uh, questionable is saying it lightly. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, you got you to gotta consider the young ones. You can't come in too strong. So why God chooses questionable people to do remarkable things. Now, if you're not yet a follower of the way of Jesus, then you might wonder how this series is even relevant to you. Here, let me say this. Uh, I believe as you journey in your process of determining what you believe about God and his uh, views on human beings, that this can be incredibly encouraging to you if you will stay with it, if you will indeed stay the course. In fact, uh, my hope for anyone asking why this series is twofold. One, that you would see God's heart toward you. And two, and hear me, lean in for this. Please lean in for this. Uh, I'm going to spend the rest of my ministry trying to convince you that you are not the sum of the last worst thing you did. But that indeed God has more for you. Indeed, that if you would entrust to God even your worst moments, that he'll work in and through you to do remarkable things. And so we're going to journey for the next several weeks through the stories of prominent biblical figures. I could have chosen 50. Uh, maybe you're going to ask yourself at one point, why not David uh, or, or some of the other more well-known characters, uh, primarily because there were a couple of stories that I specifically wanted to touch that move forward the story that God is telling in the Bible and how ludicrous it is some of the people he chooses to move his story forward. If you want to follow along with any pre-prepared sermon notes, which I hope that you would because we want you to take this out of the room and into your homes, then you can scan that QR code right there. If you don't know what that is, open up your camera on your phone. Just put it in that direction, and it'll pop up a little cue. You press the button, it'll take you to the notes. If you have a phone without a camera, uh, then I'm calling the DEA. But, um, <laughs> but if you would scan that, that'll take you to some notes that I believe will be incredibly helpful for you. And, um, and I believe they'll bless you uh, beyond this moment uh, as we journey through this series. And of course, as always, if you have any questions at any point during this series, uh, you can text sermon question to 94000. We always answer those questions. Uh, if you are in the notes already, you know we're going to be in Genesis chapter 9 today. And we're going to read just a few verses to orient our hearts to the story of this man, Noah. Uh, the author of Genesis narrative is presumed to be Moses, whose life we're also going to look at in a couple of weeks. Uh, and he records the story of a man so famous that Russell Crowe played him in one of the most horrible Hollywood movies ever made. How they pulled a rock monster from the body 
Bible, I'm not sure, and it certainly did not add to the ethos of the story at all. Uh, but what you're going to see today is most, Noah was a very real person with very real challenges. Listen, challenges to his emotional and mental health and the texture of his story. Okay, And what you're going to see is that sometimes trauma or tragedy pushes us to do the unthinkable. Things that are not even a function of our character. And yet even then, you'll hear me say this a million times as long as you're part of this community, we are still not the sum of our choices. So Genesis chapter 9, we're going to read just a few verses. Noah was a man of the soil, and he was the first to plant a vineyard. To all of you wine drinkers out there, you can thank your man Noah for that. He drank some of the wine and became drunk. Careful. And he lay uncovered in his tent, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. If you are new, you're going to hear me say this often. I'm going to say to you the word of the Lord. And what I would love for you to say back to me as we acknowledge that word, if we are followers of Jesus' way, is saying thanks be to God. So let's do that together. The word of the Lord. Amen. Father, we pray and thank you for your word now. And we pray that you would move in power through it in spite of the man uh, and all of the fallibility that I possess. Would you be front and center of the story you are telling today? In Jesus' name, amen. Question for you to consider through this entire message. How do we deal with trauma and tragedy? I know that's not the most encouraging start to a multi-week series, especially if this is your first touch with our community, but I promise it is only up from here. And it's an important question, and it's why I placed that question before you, both in light of your life pre-2020, because pre-2020 life had enough of its own issues. In fact, the, the great wisdom writer Solomon said that life under the sun is an ever-rotating mess of chaos often. Uh, it comes with challenges, simple and life-altering. And in light of everything that we have navigated since 2020, when the world shut down, in fact, we bought this building in December of 2019 thinking we were going to move into it, and then in March, the world closed down, and we stayed out of gathered worship for over 14 months, and, and, and we didn't know what would happen, in, in, including that year, what? It started off with wildfires in Australia, and then we lost COVID. And then it was one thing after another, after another, after another, after another. So it matters for you to ask how you navigate that question. Because none of us are going to be free from being touched by trauma or tragedy. None of us. And here's the issue and, and, and why it's so important for us to be, to, to, to be able to answer that question. Because the associated shame that follows trauma or tragedy can be just as crippling as the initial event itself. So how do you deal with trauma and tragedy? I want you to ask yourself that question over and over again as we navigate this time. Now, uh, 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 as, as a means of continuing the culture that we want to set here, vulnerability and transparency, I will tell you, even though it would be inappropriate for me to go into any details, I've got my own kind of childhood trauma that I've carried for a long time. 
And, and, and for much of my young adult life, it, it shaped how I saw the world. It shaped my identity. I thought it would shape my future. It pushed me to do things to try and cover the pain and the shame of that trauma, which did what? It only invited more shame. And I imagine that some, if not all of you, can relate to that at some level. So what I invite you to do is hear the story of Noah and how his story conveys the same. In fact, as we said already, Noah might be one of the most famous people to have ever existed. We noted earlier that even Hollywood decided to make a movie about his life. I'm still undecided if Russell Crowe's Noah or Christian Bale's Moses was worse. We can have that conversation afterwards. You got Batman playing Moses. I said, let my people go. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Fascinatingly, our collective familiarity with Noah's story leaves us unfamiliar. It's one of those interesting things that we can become so familiar with the text of a narrative that we miss the texture of the subtext. We can become so familiar with the presentation, I'll take it this way, we can become so familiar with the presentation of a person that we miss the texture of who they actually are. And we make a judgment on the presentation rather than, than the texture. Now, at the risk of lulling you to sleep, I want to start at the beginning. The writer of Genesis, again, likely to be Moses, tells us that uh, uh, the world had descended into chaos. So much chaos, in fact, that it says that God was sorry he ever made the world. Now, depending on how you read that will determine how you take that. Can we pause for a moment and just think of the way that we have viewed God in the course of our life? I used to view God as a distant deity that wound up the world and let it go. And if you would stay just left of his good side, he might give you some blessing. But if you stepped over to his bad side, he was certainly going to crush you. But nobody told me that God was a broken hearted father who looked at the world and grieved that it wasn't what he intended it to be. Nobody told me that, that God was actually grieved over the state of the world and heartbroken when he made this decision. Noah, however, it says, found favor in the sight of the Lord. Amid all the madness of the world in that epoch, among all of the people who reveled in wickedness, we are introduced to the main character of the story who is Noah. And Noah is said to have found favor. Now, when we get to the end of the story, what I hope you are thinking to yourself is God chose that guy and his family? Surely there's hope for me. But it says Noah found favor in his sight, which, which favor, if you want a definition, uh, so that you're not listening to somebody randomly tell you what favor is, favor is unearned blessing given by a supreme being to an unsupreme one. It's not just random undefined words. Favor has a definition. And as my old friend Saul Paul used to say, he was from Houston, he would always tell me, hey, pastor, favor ain't foul. And it's not, because it's unearned. It's unearned. And that is the measure of its, quote-unquote, 
fairness. It says that, that Moses had favor because he walked with God. And walking with God is simply a euphemism for a relationship. So anybody who has ever believed that Christianity is about religion, well, let me tell you today that you're wrong. Christianity is not about religion. It's about relationship. And the relationship aspect did not start in the New Testament. It started in the Old Testament when Adam and Eve are said to walk with God in the cool of the day. There was a relationship. But I got time right now. I had to do my contemporary Christian version in the first service. Today, at the hour of the 1145, I can open up just a little bit. We're going to run right into this party. So, the world was corrupt, it was chaotic, it was broken. In fact, there are, for, for those of you who are Bible nerds like me, there's actually three different Hebrew words for corrupt in that one sentence. And the tripling of those words is important. It's not incidental. The tripling of those words is to tell us how bad it actually was. It was that bad. And the world was in need of a cleansing. Humanity had brought the world to ruin, to the brink of total destruction. And sadly, God was the one responsible. The creator was the one responsible to cleanse his world. And so God tells Noah of his intentions. He says, build a large boat. And he gives him specific instructions on how he wants him to lay that boat out. Why? Because I'm bringing a flood. I'm bringing a flood, Noah. I'm bringing a flood and everything, listen, I need you to put your mind there. Everything you've ever known, everything you think you understand, every part of this terrain in this landscape, every facet of this world as you have come to interpret it, it is going away. Put yourself there. Can you put yourself there? Man, that is hard to read. It's even harder to narrate. If I can be honest for a minute, my, my, my first thought when I read that is, God, where's the grace? Where's the grace? You're loving God. How do I see your love when you're saying that you're going to wipe out everything you ever made? Now, as I said at the top of our time, sometimes we become so familiar with a story that we miss the texture. And we miss the connected nature of the texture in one place of the Bible and another. This is why I always tell y'all, please read your Bible. Please read your Bible. Read your Bible so that you actually understand what is taking place in this thing. Because when you ask the question, where's the grace? And you look at the Old Testament God and you say the Old Testament God was mean and the Old Testament God was angry. And you got some people out there saying, we don't even need the Old Testament. No. Uh, it's because you missed the texture. In fact, if we return to the New Testament... We can read in 2 Peter 2, 5, it says, God did not spare the ancient world. We know that part. Except for Noah and the seven others of his family, we know that part. But it doesn't say in the Old Testament. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. Do you see the texture? It seems that all the while Noah was building the ark. All the while he was hammering away, all the while he was obeying God and doing what God asked him to do. He was saying, please turn away. Please don't go in this course. This is what God's about to do. He's going to wipe away the world. Don't you understand the severity of this? Don't you understand the nature of the situation? I don't know how to explain this any further. I'm building a boat in the desert. Either you think I'm insane or maybe 
something is about to happen here. You know, Hollywood captured this story, too, in a little movie called Evan Almighty. Steve Carell, who should have won an Emmy for the office like 52 times. If you haven't seen it, it's the story. He builds the boat, and he warns them, and he warns them, and he warns them, and he warns them, and he warns them. And nobody listens. And that was the grace. That was the grace. In fact, most Bible scholars will tell you that Noah spent over a century pleading with these people to believe that God was going to do what he said he was going to do and that they could be saved from it. But they didn't listen. Can you place yourself in that moment? Those of us with little children, of course we can. We have to use our imagination. We eat food we can't see every day. Every day. And play with invisible named human beings that we hope are just figments of their imagination. <laughs> Can you place yourself there for a moment? Can you imagine if, 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 as you're preparing for this inevitable act of God, you wholeheartedly believe in God. You believe in him, and, and you're acting on that belief. You're building a boat in a waterless desert. You plead with the people that you know and love. You plead with people you don't even like because it's the right thing to do. Don't act holy in here to me. Let's be real now. Some people are just not likable, but you love them, and you want them to be saved, and you want their mansion on that side of the kingdom. I don't know if we get wishes when we get to heaven, but if the Lord says, you get one request, my son, I want to spend eternity alone in the house with my wife <laughs> and my children near enough <laughs> to see them when I want to. And nobody else. It is an introvert's dream. I'm going to write a book called The Introvert's Prayer, and that will be the first prayer in the book. Can I give you all a free lesson? We got time. Second service. When you're talking to an introverted person, I think I've said this before, but some of y'all not getting it. When, when you're talking to an introverted person and they turn their whole body, that means they done. Please, please free them. Please read their body language and know that it's not that they don't love you. It's just that they're done. They have hit the peak of their emotional energy, and anything else you get will be the dregs at the bottom of the barrel. Back on task. So, God acts as he said he would. For seven days, water pours on the earth. Now, for those of us who are skeptical, we say to ourselves, well, the earth can't flood. You sure? Have you ever seen the destruction in the wake of a tsunami? Do you remember... New Orleans laying waste on the backside of Katrina. That was one levee. That was one levee that literally buried the French Quarter. And you're telling me that for 40 days and 40 nights it rains and it does not stop raining. That the world can't flood? Surely it can. Surely it can. The flooding that we've seen in the Midwest, whole cars carried off down rivers in the middle of neighborhoods, surely it can. And in the midst of this flood for nearly two years, Noah and his family lived on a floating zoo. 
were to write a movie script or even a good book, that would seem a fitting end, wouldn't it? That's how, that's, that's how we would consider it. We would consider it the end of the story. And that's usually where we're told that the story ends. That's usually how Noah gets preached. Right? Whatever you're going through in your life, remember that God delivered Noah. It doesn't matter how big the flood is. He will save you. No, y'all ain't grow up like that. Sorry, let me. And so when you consider the ministry of the Lord in the life of Noah, you understand that, well, God's looking out for you too. Right? And that's where the story ends. That's how it gets preached. But that's not the end of the story. No, see, the, the plot shifts again. And it says that God made a covenant with Noah. That he made a covenant with him. and that, that he made promises to him and to his family. And then it shifts again. And it, and it says that after the flood, Noah, once a builder of boats, becomes a cultivator of soil. The literal Hebrew word there is husbandman. He began to practice the husbandry of cultivating a vineyard. In fact, the Hebrew is very specific. He's not just making grapes to make grapes. He's making grapes that are made to make wine. So he's the inventor of viniculture. And then the plot shifts again. And we're introduced to a new tragedy on top of tragedy. The Bible says that Noah gets drunk. He drinks the wine that he made. And, he, and either he was a lightweight, maybe he was a lightweight, right? He didn't get any drinking done there on the boat. Or, or maybe he just drank too much. But either way, he got drunk and he got naked and he passed out. And we read past that. And we don't ask the question. Or at least let me, let me say that I can't speak for y'all. Y'all are probably far more scholarly. I'd never ask the question. After such a glorious deliverance from God, why are you getting drunk? You were just spared. The whole world was wiped out. That's how I feel too. The whole world was just wiped out. Why are you wasted when you were spared? Somebody whispered to me after the first service, Pastor, it's survivor's guilt. You see, if I may, we, we, we often overlook the trauma of deliverance. We only look at the results. We forget there was a process. We look at the end. We forget there was a middle part. In our own lives, in the lives of our people, in the lives, listen, in the lives of these Bible characters, we forget that in order to get over something, you got to go through something. And they're going through, they're going through, it leaves scars, it leaves marks. And so here we have a man named Noah who believed God enough to build a boat in the middle of the desert. I don't know if I have that faith. 
And now he's drunk and naked and passed out. Why? I suspect that after three years, that's about how long it's been since they exited the ark. After the three years of exiting the ark, I suspect that the trauma finally caught up to him. I mean, again, if you can just put yourself there, imagine uncles, aunts, friends, cousins, your favorite restaurant, your first home. You know, I know that that often because of the way media has shaped us, and I don't want to get into like a weird, you know, uh, uh, conversation about social experiments, but this is a social experiment that we are living in very much with media and social media. Um, But very often we think of the world, the ancient world, as this barely inhabitable hellscape. I want you to jump forward into Genesis 10 where they built a tower to the sky. Watch this little revelation for you today. In large part to bolster themselves against another flood. Not just to put themselves in the place of God. So imagine again, if you would, just for a moment, imagine... Homes, children, schools, people, government, all of the associated and connected entities that spelled stability in life as a human are gone. Do you think you'd be a little bit traumatized? When you hear it that way, getting drunk and passing out don't sound like such a bad idea. And that's where we find this man. If you can't put yourself in Noah's sandals. I appreciate the handful of y'all who caught that. It blesses me. You see, family, trauma and tragedy can push us to do things we never imagined we would do. Cause us to act in ways far outside of our character that can be just as or more crippling. And the associated shame, well, it becomes all-encompassing, whether it is getting drunk or passing out or some other form of acting out. As we try to manage the trauma and manage the tragedy, shame is always the feeling that follows. Noah moves to conclude that... The telling of his story and tragedy upon tragedy. The Bible tells us that one of Noah's own children, Ham, sees him naked and passed out. Now, I, I, I really debated on how to share this because sometimes what's there is not all that's there. And, and so I was speaking to one of my mentors and, and, and one of my preaching professors, Brian Chappell, And I said, I don't know if I should share this. I don't know if I should get into this. And he said, well, it really depends on the nature of your congregation and and, and their ability to handle those types of things and and how they function. And he said, how how would you consider your congregation? I said, "Uh, um, uh, wildly vulnerable to the edge of chaos. (laughs) And he said, tell it, tell it. (laughs) So I'm going to tell you something that you likely never heard. But I want to start back and work back to the event. So if you know this story, you know that that the event of nakedness happens and then it says that Noah cursed his son Ham and every generation after him. That's a steep penalty for just seeing a guy naked, isn't it? So what actually happened there? 
Well, every scholar that I've studied, and then when I got into the language myself, unsettlingly, what happened there is something far more unnatural and perverse than just seeing someone naked. And that, that, if it wasn't enough, was followed by him going out and telling his brothers what he had done. Shame upon shame. And yet, in the midst of that shame, we have something more beautiful. If you hand me that black sheet, no, the black one, the own sheet there. And I'm going to do this because I want you guys to get a picture of what this was like. Let me get sticks and let me get Rory. No. Siri, you're not doing good today. My do not disturb is on. Hold that. Rory, you come hold this. Turn your back. Unlike, y'all spread it out. Unlike Ham, it says that the other two brothers took this occasion after they heard of their father's shame. And it says they walked backwards, not even looking at him. Stop right there. And they covered him. so that he could not be seen in his shame while he recovered from his sin. Now, why is that important? Thank you, brothers. Why is that important? Because we ask the question, where's the grace in the Old Testament? Where's the grace in the Old Testament? The Old Testament is a whole book of grace. Because what better picture of the gospel can we have than Jesus refusing to see us as we are? I wish I could get some help in here today. And covering us. So that he only sees us as we will be. So even in the midst of this brokenness, we have this beautiful picture of the gospel where his two other sons decide that rather than revel in my daddy's shame, I'm going to cover it. It's not only a picture of the gospel family, it's supposed to be a picture of the family of God. Amen. Now, I know that's going to be difficult in a world now where, where failure porn and the salaciousness of a rise and a fall are what builds our culture. 
But are we not supposed to be a counter culture? A place where people can do shameful things and not be treated as shamefully. And that's what his two other sons did for him. They, they covered his shame the way that Jesus now with joy covers ours. Why? Because it is wrong to revel in the shame of others. Instead, we should do our best to reflect the heart of Jesus. Noah's thankfulness for that covering was so high that he turns to his other two sons and he says, may the God of Shem be blessed. He blesses the Lord. And by blessing the Lord, he blesses his children. What does this passage teach us? It teaches us, and this is what I told you, you'd be saying at the end, God chose this family to move his story forward. What this passage teaches us is that the family that was chosen to continue the story that God was telling following Adam and Eve was grotesquely broken. Far greater than questionable. And yet, even then, Noah was not called the sum of the last Worst thing he did. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us that he was righteous by faith. Listen, even though he was not righteous by actions. My friends, Noah's story reveals to all of us the ubiquity of pain and shame and the human experience how we respond to it, and listen to this, most importantly, the willingness, listen, joyful willingness of God to continue to still move toward us and work with us to do the remarkable in spite of us. It's who he is. It's who he is. At one point in my early 20s, I became so wrapped in this loop, somebody's going to identify with this, of shame, acting out because of shame, shame because of acting out, acting out because of the shame because of acting out. It's a shame cycle. And I was so broken by it that I became convinced that, that neither God or the world had much use for anybody like me. And then one day I heard a man on the radio preaching, his name is Alistair Begg. Scottish man, i got a few minutes here. I want you to prepare for the greatest Scottish accent you've ever heard in your entire life. <laughs> it's really terrible. He was talking about a conversation he had with, he, he says it this way, with my Armenian friend. And he was saying that his friend was saying you could lose your salvation, you could lose everything. And he quoted to him Jesus' words where Jesus says that those who the Father has put in my hand, none can take out. And this man said back to him, yeah, but you could jump out. And in that moment, 
Beg said, and, and he has this pause. You know, when somebody's been preaching a long time, they know how to preach the pause. I'm still getting there. And he goes, are you more powerful than God then? And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, Crump, Crump, would you count yourself strong enough to peel the grip of the living God from around your life? And I was never the same. And it was that day that I became convinced. Now, I believe what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. That's why you got to read your Bible. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, do we sin all the more so that grace would abound all the more? No. By no means. But at the same time, I am not the sum of the last worst thing that I did. And my shame and my pain do not count me out. For God to do remarkable things in and through me. Let me close with this. Why is that important? Because we think shame and pain remove our capacity for the remarkable. We think pain and shame remove our capacity for the remarkable. When in fact, acknowledged pain and shame only make more capacity for the infilling of God's presence. And at that moment, at that moment, we come to believe, we come to believe that God covers our shame and then releases us to do remarkable things. So here's the question I put before you today. What do you do with your tragedy and your trauma? Who do you believe it makes you? What a hindrance do you think it is in your life? Let me tell you what you do with it. You give it to God. Who does it make you? Nothing less than what God already called you. What does it limit? Absolutely nothing. Because in every dark corner of your heart, God will shine his light if you let him. And he will release you in this world to do remarkable things. Question is, will you let him? Will you let him? Will you let him? Will you let him? Will today be different than any day before? You better shout, baby. Because if you'll let him, if you'll let him, your story will be changed forever. Father, I pray for these people. I pray that they receive this word today with gladness and in power. And I pray today, Lord God, that we are declaring as a community that pain and shame do not have the last word, that we are not the sum of the last worst thing we did or the thing done to us, but that in fact, you have more for us if we would simply release ourselves to you. So we do that now gladly in Christ's name. Amen.